Hey there guys, welcome to the Holy Shed, the littlest parish in Christendom, which I have to report today feels also like the hottest parish in Christendom. I know it isn't, you know, I mean there's Newcastle and Tyne and elsewhere, <laughs> but uh, it's pretty blinking warm in here, I can tell you. What's that you say? This. I know, I know. Do you like it, my new shirt? I bought it last week on the South Coast, where, among other things, I led an Enneagram workshop with the team of an amazing charity called Beyond the Streets. Check them out, doing brilliant work. And a big thank you to Josephine and Mark for making that happen. We had a, such a lovely day together. Uh, quite a busy week this last week, actually, getting around, doing all kinds of things. On Monday, I conducted a memorial service for a wonderful man called John Wheaton. It was at uh, yes, it was at Emsworth Sailing Club, no less. What a stunning setting that was. And one of the highlights, which will stay in my mind for a long time, was gathering everyone at the waterside to scatter John's ashes on the outgoing tide. I mean, it was so moving to see, I don't know, 70 or 80 people, blokes and women in their lovely dresses and little kids all shedding their shoes, uh, grabbing a handful of John's ash and then wading out into the water to bid him farewell. It was just a year since I led a similar event down there for his dear wife. It was, it was a great day. I met some lovely, lovely people there. Um, oh, by the way, uh, this week, look who's in the shed. Well, he isn't right now, but uh, a bit earlier on, our daughter Lizzie, you see, and our granddaughter our granddog, our granddog, Kevin, have been staying with us. And this is Kevin, earlier on in the day, preparing today's shed with me. Um, we're just taking a moment out here to look out into the garden. We both enjoy looking at birds on the feeder, but for slightly different reasons, I'd have to say. <laughs> OK, so jumping in on today's topic which was actually prompted by a question messaged to me this week by a friend, Heather, who makes a very good point. She asked me, is there a God? What is the concrete evidence? There seems, she says, to be more evidence that there is no God. Now, clearly, a lot of people will agree with this. It isn't difficult to look at the many horrible things happening in the world and think how could this you know how could there possibly be a god least of all a god of love i mean why would such a god allow these things to happen stand by when there's so much suffering and pain in the world so much injustice so much even in nature itself that appears cruel and challenging um, as for the the so-called proof that there is a god uh, I'm sure many Christian apologists, you know, will enthusiastically leap forward at that point with all their well-worn arguments in favour of God's existence. Some of which, uh, I have to say, I've used myself in times gone by. Nowadays, um, to be perfectly honest, such arguments leave me stone cold. I, I don't imagine many people have ever been drawn into faith or found a better you know, walk with God by abstract, argument, abstract arguments, each of which requires certain assumptions, certain presuppositions, and so on. I believe questions about God's existence, such as Heather has asked, are actually an essential part of the faith journey. Faith, after all, isn't about proof. 
you know, if I say that I have faith that the Tower of London exists, I hope that you would all now burst out laughing at me for being so stupid. Of course the Tower of London exists. That is a matter of fact, not faith. So if anyone can prove there is a God, that would be the end of faith, you know. Faith would be redundant. You wouldn't need it anymore, you know. If I'm ever dumb enough to doubt that the Tower of London exists, well, I'd just need to catch a tube to Tower Hill and, hey presto, sorted. But faith, you see, is something different. It doesn't rest on proof as such. It rests on things like trust, confidence, personal experience, sort of deep gut-level conviction or persuasion. In other words, it's, it's a subjective thing. It's not objective, it's subjective. Therefore, it needs, you know, essentially to incorporate doubt and questions which become, you know, like the acid bath that helps keep us from self-delusion or from sheer unreality. If we never doubt the reality of God, if we never struggle with the sometimes painful contradictions involved in faith, then we are probably confusing faith with mere religious assumption. Many of us have grown up with or opted into church communities where belief in God is just that. It's a default assumption uh, where doubt is an act of betrayal. The church has, I believe, advertently or inadvertently created an atmosphere in which it's very difficult to question fundamental things openly in the church. It's acceptable to question or to doubt or to argue about things which are considered peripheral, you know, but then each group will have its own definition of what is peripheral. But to question the most basic assumptions, does God actually exist? Is Jesus God's son? And so on and so forth is mm, quite a different thing. It's much more disruptive and likely to lead to being viewed as an outsider, you know, someone who needs to be converted or saved and certainly not as a sister or a brother in Christ. So, as I said last week, churches, especially evangelical and other, you know, conservative variations, unsurprisingly generate an underlying atmosphere of fear about questioning the basics, fear of being treated as a backslider, as a spiritual wimp, you know, a woolly liberal like me, and even worse, fear of being rejected by God and ending up in hell. So the culture becomes one I would say, of toxic conformity, which any honest questioner cannot possibly inhabit safely or comfortably, and so, you know, for the most part, tends to depart. I've just finished reading uh, an absorbing book called My Bright Abyss, Meditation of a Modern Believer. Uh, it's by a man called Christian Wiman, W-I-M-A-N, who's a poet who grew up in a Baptist church in uh, West Texas, where he had a charismatic experience of being filled with the Spirit, as indeed I did, uh, and he had it like me as a young teenager. But he then, before long, abandoned faith, and for decades he lived really a very productive life without faith. And then through two almost simultaneous life-altering events in his late 30s, falling in love with a woman 
who became his wife, plus a devastating diagnosis of a rare form of seemingly incurable cancer, um, through these two things, he returned to Christianity as what he describes as the only framework he knew that seemed adequate to the extremes of joy and fear which he experienced through those two events. But Women is no conventional believer, trust me, hence he's described on the cover as a modern believer. Um, he is a poet, after all, you know, with a poet's heart. And he says that faith in God is in the deepest sense faith in life. Faith in God is in the deepest sense faith in life, which because life involves constant flux and uncertainty means that even the staunchest life of faith is a life of great change. It follows, he says, that if you believe at 50 what you believed at 15, then you have not lived. Because faith, like life itself, is always changing and evolving. It's in constant flux. Faith, like life, is contingent, you know, experienced in the moment. Because life and faith only really exist in the moment. No one knows anything, you know, about the future beyond that. Christian women's story is a journey from an inherited, assumed kind of faith in his childhood. He actually says that to call West Texas predominantly Christian is like calling the Sahara Desert predominantly sand. <laughs> you know, he says he never met an actual unbeliever until his first day at college in Virginia. And so he, he moved from that sort of simplistic, assumed faith to what he describes as a bookish atheism. And then, as I've said, he moves in his late 30s to a reconstructed faith that embraces uncertainty and contingency as essential ingredients to the very nature of faith. I mean, I love the book. It's, um, it's, a, it's a, a really quite profound book, beautifully written. The major problem in our original question, is there a God? What is the concrete evidence? And maybe there's more evidence that there's no God. That The kind of major problem with it is that it all depends on what we mean by God. What sort of God? What sort of God do we envisage? And what do we expect of this God? Christian Women says that if you believe at 50 what you believe at 15, then you've not lived. Well, I can categorically say that I no longer believe in the God I believed in when I was 15. If that was the only thing that was on offer, I would certainly be an atheist, no question. So, but does that mean that my, you know, 15-year-old faith was, was just rubbish? Was it unreal or a sham? No, of course not. Because beyond anything I believed about God, I genuinely trusted in that which is greater. I could say that I trusted in the God who is beyond God, as Paul Tillich puts it. God who is beyond all the definitions and all the versions of God that we have swilling around here. Uh, Tillich speaks of a God beyond all of these definitions and descriptions. Um, a God who is beyond every definition beyond every rational understanding, beyond every religion or religious assertion about God. A God who is ultimate mystery and yet present everywhere, including 
in the various faith traditions. Meanwhile, my 15-year-old notion of God was it was basically, you know, the God that I inherited from my church background, a sectarian God simply of Christianity, who was against all other sort of versions, against other religions. Um, it was a God who sent unbelievers to hell, you know, a God who could supernaturally intervene in events in the world any time at will, and yet never uh, seemed to intervene in anything that I would imagine really mattered, you know, a God who supposedly loves the world and yet uh, seemingly ultimately vindictive toward all who are not part of his clan. This is, as I say, the kind of description uh, of the God that I had when I was 15, which I have long since utterly shunned and disbelieve in. Classic theism, you know, uh, belief in, in a theistic God, envisages God uh, with words like omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everything. But Christian women, uh, in his book, asks what in the world these, and he describes them as rotten words, what in the world do these rotten words mean? Are we able to imagine such attributes, he asks, much less perceive them? What do they even mean? In recent, uh, in reality rather, most Christians barely give these things or their consequences a second thought. Um, you know, they basically become encrusted dogma, beliefs, which must be given assent in order to be part of the gang um, and never ever examined for the the veracity or, or, for, or for the common sense of them in a real world of random suffering, uh, of utter injustice and pain and, and so on and so forth. It's interesting that Christian women's book is written in the midst of suffering from incurable cancer, or so he thought. Uh, it turns out, actually, as you go on through the book, that his bone transplant and umpteen utterly unbearable treatments that he went through uh, led to what he hopes is a long period of remission. But it was in the midst of, of experiencing that, in the midst of his suffering, that he glimpsed God afresh. Um, if Christianity is going to mean anything at all for us now, he writes, then the humanity of God cannot be half measure. God cannot float over the chaos of pain and particles in which we are mired like some shiny superhero. I so, so agree with that. Um, you know, God, to be any kind of God that I as a human being, you know, can relate to, connect with and embrace, God cannot be that sort of shining superhero floating over the top of all of these things. God has to be embedded in the world of suffering amongst other things, you know, feel the pain of every pointless death, experience the agony of violence and abuse, of random disease, of shit happens events which are just all around us day by day. Probably the most precious thing at the heart of Christianity for me is belief in incarnation. Incarnation is a word that means becoming flesh or made flesh and in Christian terms, it's the belief that God specifically became flesh and blood in Christ 
um, but actually mysteriously becomes flesh and blood again and again and again and again in each of us and is intrinsically bound up in the pain and suffering of every human being. Indeed, you know, the, the pain and the agony, uh, the travail of creation itself, Paul speaks about in, in Romans 8. Christian Women says that the minute you begin to speak with certitude about God, God is gone. It's worth thinking about that. The minute you begin to speak with certitude about God, God is done. It's like trying to get hold of something that you're never going to be able to get hold of. And as soon as you think you've got it, it's disappeared. And there, I think, right there is the problem that religion often speaks with certitude uh, about an almighty, supernatural, all-loving being with powers to intervene wherever and whenever Whilst in reality, you know, situations of extreme suffering and injustice persist without any apparent reply or response. Now, there is an, a totally intrinsic problem in those things. And if we don't see that, then I don't think our eyes are open to reality at all. If we picture God as this great potentate, you know, an all-powerful king of the universe, then we must live with the consequences of that. And we'll end up asking what sort of being can he be? Um, when I recently asked a lovely woman who has suffered so much inner pain in recent months how she imagined God, she quite immediately replied, I picture God holding my broken heart. Well, wow, you know, I really didn't expect that. There were many images I thought she might give as she contemplated you know, the suffering and pain that she'd been through with, without any supernatural intervention to make things well. But what she said absolutely melted me to the core of my being. And I just thought, this is a God I can believe in, the God who is holding her broken heart. And when I look around, I see people of faith and more significantly, people of no faith at all who somehow survive appalling, dreadful circumstances because in their core they sense unarticulated, unacknowledged something beyond. Something beyond, you know. Call it survival instinct, call it belief in life, call it that of God in everyone as the Quakers do. Uh, but there seems to be in human beings a latent defiant hope for something better in this life and or in the beyond. I've watched people die. I've watched people die without any particular faith who nevertheless seem to entrust themselves to this beyond, you know, not a simplistic and I think sometimes pernicious notion of going to a better place. But no, no, it's more like somehow falling deeper into life even through death. And as I say, I've seen that again and again in some form or other in people uh, who have no faith uh, in God as in, an, in an, any orthodox sense, at least, at all. Possibly for me, the most helpful image of God in Scripture has its origins in paganism. When Paul, in Acts chapter 17, speaking at the Areopagus in Athens to worshippers of what he, he described as an unknown God, Paul quotes a poem by the Greek poet Aratus, which says, 
In God we live and move and have our being, for we are all God's offspring. Now I think, you know, if some Bible-believing Christians realise that these words are actually from the opening invocation to Zeus, it would certainly rub them up the wrong way or leave them a little bit discomforted. And yet Paul seemed, you know, quite comfortable to appropriate those words uh, in, in his own sort of description of God. What helps me so much about this image, you know, of in God we live and move and have our being, is its universality. Um, in more modern times, you know, I would think that you could translate that because it suggests to me that God can be thought of as being like the atmosphere that surrounds the earth, that precious um, ring uh, that, that, that we see as a little green light when you see the sort of images from space. Um, and we could think of, of God like this, as a constant presence in which we live and move and have our being, just as we do in the atmosphere, which holds and sustains us in every circumstance we're all God's offspring and God is that which lovingly holds our broken hearts as well as our hopes and joys and aspirations I love that image but we can also look for the reality of God on a more personal and interpersonal level St John in in his first epistle famously declares that God is love and that those who experience love experience God. Which is, a, I think, one of the most inclusive statements in the Bible. God is love and those who live in God, those who live in love, live in God. And that God is in them, that God is alive within them. What a fantastic statement that is. And uh, I think that this idea lies behind something the Christian women is getting at in his book when he says that Christ comes alive in the communion between people. Christ comes alive in the communion between people. Perhaps that spark or glow uh, that we sense when we interact lovingly with friends or even with strangers, you know, is the presence of Christ coming alive, resurrected through that interaction, through that communion. Wow, what a wonderful dynamic statement that is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, whilst in prison uh, before the end of the war, says that Christ is always stronger in our brother's or sister's heart than in our own. Christ is always stronger in our brother's or sister's heart than in our own. Which is to say, firstly, that we depend on others for our faith. And second, that the love of Christ is not something that we can ever hoard <laughs> you know it must be shared it must be found in the other constantly again and again and again human love catalyzes the love of Christ brings it alive in us resurrects Christ anew in our hearts and in our experience back to Heather's question I find plenty of evidence that the man in the sky that man in the sky God does not exist that the heavenly potentate is a myth. But I find overwhelming evidence for a God who is everywhere, in whom we live and move and have our being, a God who comes alive to us in the transitions and contingencies, the difficulties of life, who is part and parcel with the suffering and pain. And 
with the joy and wonder of life that we experience too. So as for me, guys, I'm not looking for the Superman God. I, not just because I don't believe in that kind of God, because I don't want that kind of God. Um, I'm looking for the God who holds broken hearts. That impresses me far more. I'm looking for the God who is the communion between friends and strangers, who is the life force that constantly breathes fresh possibility into damaged lives, uh, a damaged world, damaged circumstances, who inspires us to intervene instead of looking for an interventionist God who inspires us to intervene, to be part of this great mission of God, the task of repairing the world. That's the kind of God that I believe in. So here's a prayer. Well, it's kind of a prayer and it's kind of an affirmation. I don't believe in a man in the sky, big brother, listening in on every conversation, grim-faced at our stupidities and keeping count of gaffes, foibles and offences. I don't believe in religious elitism. It's our way or be damned. I don't believe in cheap biblical put-downs or final claims to truth. I don't believe in proofs of God's existence, mind games, claiming certitude in the face of unfathomable mystery. I believe, I believe in tentative efforts at truth, shuffling metaphors and symbols which point and nudge, which cannot claim to reveal anything for certain and yet open windows on faith's imagination. I believe in genuflecting when passing majestic trees or when witnessing a sunset over the ponds and roosting ducks on Clapham Common. I believe in kindness towards strangers, a sign of peace toward enemies, sharing bread and wine with those whose vision of the world I don't even understand. I believe that when every I believe that with every breath of fresh air we inhale the spirit, that every plot of earth is infused with divinity that every broken heart is held, every joyful hope shared. I believe in the God who plays in the playfulness of puppies, who sings in the darkness with nightingales, who lays down with the sick, weeps with the bereaved, who roars for justice when the hungry go unfed, the marginalised are unheard, and Mother Earth and her creatures are desecrated through our greed. I believe in this God. I do indeed. Amen. So, let's uh, let's toast to it all, should we? If you've got a drink, this is the sacrament of the holy shed. A toast to life. So, whatever you've got to toast with, I would like you to uh, hold it in your hand now as um, I propose this toast. A toast to everyone who struggles to make sense of faith. May their struggles persist in a good way. A toast to everyone who's passing through darkness. May they find a deep and dazzling darkness that leads them to God. A toast 
to a joyful world of wonder and glorious mystery which we'll never ever exhaust if we lived as long as Methuselah and lots more. Dear friends, to life, Lachaim. Amen. So if you like the shed, if you like what we're doing here, you can support us by buying us a coffee. Just follow the link which is on your screen now or it's always at the top of the posts on the Holy Shed Facebook page. It took my breath away that whiskey then because I didn't actually have any water in the bottom of it. <laughs> nice though. Um, and yeah, not a lot more to say really. I shall be doing a pause for thought on Zoe Ball's show on Radio 2 on Friday, 7.15am. If you're up, I'd love to know that you're out there listening. And uh, if you're not up or you're just not available, don't worry, because it will appear quite soon after on BBC Sounds. And I'll put a link up for that on my Facebook page. <coughs> so everything I've been saying this week and what I said last week, really, um, really comes back to one basic thing, which is the importance of trusting ourselves, trusting our instincts, trusting the God who is within us. And so, you know, don't conform, trust the instincts that you have. And, you know, even if we're wrong and we go wrong, it doesn't matter. As I said last week, we all have a reverse gear. We just need to kind of go back and acknowledge the fact that we got something wrong. But I, I'm fed up with, I'm fed up with, uh, you know, a form of so-called faith, which doesn't allow us to trust the God within ourselves, which is trusting in, you know, the leaders and their exposition of the Bible and, and what Christianity, all those things. We need to come back and find the God within. Trust yourself. So I'm going to finish with uh, a little video by a lovely, lovely lady who is talking about this whole business of trusting yourself. I think you'll enjoy it. Meanwhile, go well, stay human, and I will see you very soon. Bye. No, none of this was part of my plan. I pictured myself having a dignified old age. <laughs> Not what I have. Let's go to the front. There was a time in my life when I cared a lot about what people thought, trying so hard to fit the, the mould. We, I think we brought up like that. We taught that we must fall in with what society says. And if we don't, we're not going to be liked or we're going to be punished. Expectations are a trap. Don't be afraid to think for yourself and trust your own judgment and take action on that and not what other people tell you to do. Each time I took a step to break away from the norm, I felt the freedom and the, the joy of living that came from that. The most important thing that we have to do is learn to love being who we are. Because once we've learned to love being who we are, 
sets us free to just be who we are without needing anybody else because it's so nice to be who we are. If that word love is used in its most powerful context, it's a force on the earth. Love is a force on the earth. Thank you so much for watching this week's film guys and thank you for your wonderful comments down below and if you would like to support us for less than a cup of coffee please follow the link below to patreon.com thank you so much